Welcome to Extreme Genes, brought to you by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, how can friends, associates, and neighbors of your ancestors help you find out more about them? Hi, it's Fisher, and I'll be talking to Rachel Potma, a researcher with Legacy Tree Genealogist, talking about the Friends, Associations, and Neighbors, the Fan Club Principle. You'll be surprised about what these people can tell you about your ancestors. That's this week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, brought to you by FamilySearch.org. Discover. Gather. Connect a presentation of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And welcome to America's family history show, Extreme Genes and ExtremeGenes.com. It is Fisher here, your radio root sleuth, on the program where we shake your family tree and watch the nuts fall out. Well, how you doing? It's great to have you along, Genies. Hope you're hanging in there, and hopefully you're getting a lot done with all this extra time we suddenly have on our hands. And, you know, I've heard from a lot of people asking questions like, how do I get through my brick walls? Of course, that's a very broad question, but one technique for doing that is something called the fan club principle. And we're going to talk about that today, a little bit later on with our guest, Rachel Popma from Legacy Tree Genealogist. She's going to talk about how this thing involving friends, associates, and neighbors fans, your fan club, researching them can help you figure out where your people came from and who your people are descended from. So we're going to hear a couple of segments on that and some great stories about it as well. Uh, If you haven't signed up for our weekly Genie newsletter yet, now's the time to do it. Well, you got the time to read it. And of course, check out the links to past and present shows and stories you'll be interested in as a genealogist. And of course, my blog every week. Right now, it's time to head out to Boston and talk to David Allen Lambert. He is the chief genealogist of the New England Historic Genealogical Society and AmericanAncestors.org. David, how are you? Hey, I'm great. I'm not at Beantown. I'm in my own town. Uh, yes. It's March 16th, like so many of our listeners are working from home or self-quarantined. And I thought I'd start off with a really happy story. We have a oldest survivor of covid Oh, wow. Uh, the funny thing is, he survived the Spanish flu, the Great Depression, and World War II. And I'm talking about Bill Lapchies, who is an Oregon World War II veteran who is 104. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? And he got sick with COVID-19, bless his heart, mm-hmm. and he pulled through it just in time for his 104th birthday. So he is now considered the oldest COVID-19 survivor in the world. I can't think of a better birthday present. Right to survive and get over COVID-19. No question. My next topic has to do with an older gentleman, not as old as Bill. This is a tycoon by the name of Bernie Eccleson, who is a former Formula One group chief executive. He is 89. Yeah. And he's expecting a baby with his 44-year-old wife (laughs) in July. Oh, wow. Now, here's the real complicated thing. He has other children, 131 and his daughter, Deborah, who turned 65 this year, who is already a grandmother. So technically, when this baby is born, he or she will already be a grand-aunt or grand-uncle. Wow. Yeah, and the 65-year-old, I mean, she's she's on Medicare, and she's going to have a little half-sibling born here in July. And hey, uh, why is efforts. his daughter on Medicare? <laughs> well, because she's 65. It's automatic. Oh, that's true. That's yeah. True. So, true. yeah. So th- this I, reunions are going to be really awkward when she's 100 and, and her little brother's 35 or whatever it is. <laughs> 
Well, congratulations to the happy couple and the next branch of their family tree. You know, I wonder, Fish, sometimes when we look around our house, we take for granted the household items that we have, and we've always had them. But if you go to a museum, a place like the Smithsonian, where this great story from Smithsonian Magazine that you posted talks about surprising facts about everyday household objects that we have. Did you know that a fork was considered forbidden because yeah. it looked like the devil's pitchfork? Isn't that funny? <laughs> so that the car keys that you had, they didn't fit in your pocket. That's why you see like a jailer with a ring because those keys were so large. So keys were not as small. Now we use our phone to unlock things. I That's mean, right. Amazing. You know, there's just so many different things that we take for granted. And I wonder if we, you know, we're keeping a journal or something like that. You just happen to mention something random. How in 100 years or 200 years, someone will say, what was a VHS machine? Oh, totally. I, yeah. I think there are a lot of people this generation right now are going, what was that? Exactly. So go to ExtremeGenes.com and take a peek at these 10 surprising facts from the Smithsonian. You know, Kansas City has a World War I museum. It's a tremendous place, lots of artifacts, but they have thousands upon thousands of letters and diaries and journals that people have donated. Guess what? They're having employees scan them and transcribe them at home so they can have work. Yeah. yeah otherwise, they got to lay them off. And what a great thing to mm -hmm. have them do, right? It's amazing. And I think that makes me want to visit the Kansas City World War I Museum even more so now. Uh, so bravo to them. But you know, a lot of people, including yourself, are looking to connect with people online, and that is true with FamilySearch. They are now doing a FamilySearch live community, which you can take part in. If you visit their Instagram site, FamilySearch, on Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, you can chat with members of FamilySearch's team and guests. And they also have one for Facebook Live on Wednesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern. And there is also another Instagram, one on Thursdays at 1 p.m. So two Instagrams, Tuesday and Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and on Facebook Live on their Facebook page, 6 p.m. on Wednesdays. Thanks so much, David. We will talk to you again at the back end of the show as we do another round of Ask Us Anything. And I'm talking to Rachel Popma today. She's with Legacy Tree Genealogists. And uh, Rachel is in Indianapolis and has come up with a list of tips to use with a thing called the fan club principle. And Rachel, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Let's talk about what the principle is itself for people who aren't familiar with it. Sure. Thanks. It's great to be here. Well, fan club is a term that was coined by Elizabeth Schoen Mills. You may be familiar with her. Yep. And it stands for Friends, Associates, and Neighbors. So your fan club, the people yeah. that you know. Yeah, your buddies. Uh, exactly. It is also sometimes referred to as cluster research. So you'll... you'll I like fan club those. much better. Fan club sounds catchier. a lot more fun. Yeah. A little catchier. That's true. And basically what that is, is... It's a research technique where you look at the individual's connections. So their friends, associates, and neighbors. Those might be people like the neighbors in the census, right? The, the sure. folks who live next door. Either we side. All probably, yep, we probably have that in our families where they marry the girl next door, sometimes quite literally. But it also means people like the folks who were witnesses to marriages or to land transactions. Maybe they were witnesses to somebody's 
signing their will. Baptismal sponsors are often ones sure. that we see a lot. Usually those are family members, but sometimes they're just folks that were in the same church congregation. Well, and this is important for people who've moved around a lot and they just Absolutely. kind of uh, dropped in from the sky, right? Right. Well, that's the thing, right? <laughs> Nobody really <laughs> is an island. We like to think it seems like they dropped out of the sky sometimes, but it's not necessarily true. I've also had experiences where looking at somebody's employer actually yeah. ended up being the key to figure out their origins. So really? Sometimes we have to think pretty broadly about who our research subjects may have been involved with. So are there um, are there areas of the country that maybe works better with the fan club principle than others? I, you know, I think it works pretty well just about wherever you are. Obviously, if you're if you're in a very large urban area, mm. um, people New may York, not have known New York, New York. freaking city, New York exactly. freaking city. You can't do it there so much because everybody's there. <laughs> exactly. Right? They may not have had as close connections with the people around them, but they still had some connections with folks around sure. them. One of my great grandmothers grew up in a Jewish immigrant family in New York, and certainly her neighborhood was filled with, in some cases, extended relatives mm -hmm. of hers. So sometimes it works better in, in lesser populated places, but I wouldn't rule it out just because you think, oh gosh, you know, how can I trace anybody in New sure. York City? Sure, right, good point. Yeah. And that's probably the most extreme example right there. Right. But in some yeah. of the more agricultural areas, this has got to be enormously helpful. It really can be. It really can be, particularly in cases that we often run into, right, where we're dealing with those pre-1850 U.S. projects, right, where we don't sure. have a census record that lists everybody in the household. No, just um, little notches. Just little notches. We don't even necessarily have a census record that tells us how everybody is related, which is convenient, if not always accurate. Mm -hmm. So working to look at other kinds of records and figure out who people were interacting with on a daily basis, figuring out what kind of the web of connections was like can be a really good way to find an answer to the research question. So let's give an example then of a circumstance you'd run into. How do you begin to expand that circle? The family, I would imagine, the known mm -hmm. family is the immediate right. inner circle. Right, and, exactly. And then what do you what do you do from there? Your next step depends a little bit on what time periods you're looking at. Obviously, if you have census records available, looking at who's living in the immediate area. So some of the households before the household of interest, some of the households after looking in the same township. You know, if you're kind of looking out the Midwest to the West, looking in the same township, the same county getting an idea of who those folks are and importantly, where they're coming from. Because mm -hmm. you will often find that it's not just your household that came from New York, but they might be on a census page full of people sure. that seem to have come from New York. Well, that should be a clue to you that there's probably a connection somewhere. I would think that uh, pre-census, you'd really find some benefit from those old property maps from Absolutely. the counties, you know, that shows who yep. lived where. And if your person yep. is surrounded by these people researching those folks. Absolutely. The plat books are really helpful that way. Also looking again at the land records. So not just 
who folks are selling to or buying from, but also who's witnessing those transactions. Uh, I've had cases where there'll be several deeds sort of all registered on the same day, right? You have to like drive to town to go take care of that at the courthouse. Um, so they all go at once and they're all witnessing each other's deeds. So they may not have actually been buying and selling to each other, but they were clearly neighbors with common business. And yeah. so looking at who those people are and doing a little bit of research on them can often lead you to figure out what the connections are there. Do you find uh, people who have, say, the same occupation might be connected? Certainly. Maybe not so much with farmers. Right. <laughs> right? Yeah. Everybody being a farmer. That might be a problem. Yeah, you know, but certainly the skilled trades, you'll very often find connections. One of the other things I was going to note here is that this technique is really helpful in sorting out people with common surnames. So I think we've probably had examples where we look at a census and we notice there are 15 households that are all named Smith. Right. Oh, boy. Right. And you think, oh, gosh, well, surely they're not all related. <laughs> it's dangerous <laughs> to assume that they are all related. Right. Yeah. Right. But it's also dangerous to assume that they're not. The only way that you kind of figure that out is by looking at each of them and figuring out who they're associating with. So are there groups that live close to each other? Are they going into town together to witness each other's land transactions? Are they intermarrying? So building out those connections is one way that you can deal with that really common yeah. research issue. Interesting. There are a couple of other situations in which this kind of research is really important. One of those is when researching women, because yeah, sure. they're the, often invisible. The or names are changing all the time, right? Especially if they've Absolutely. married more than once. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Oh, boy. Absolutely. So if they're mentioned in records at all, they're mentioned usually by their husband's surname. And by looking at sort of who's living around them and, again, who their husbands are having transactions with and researching those family groups, you can often figure out where they came from, mm -hmm. so to speak, <laughs> their family of origin. Well, and, you know, it would be easy, I suppose, even in an agricultural area to start going through probate records and, and yep. seeing what the common names are. But boy, if you can right. narrow it down by coming up with the, the handful of people that you really want to right. target, that's got to make exactly. a huge difference because this is one of those yeah. things that could be very time consuming. Yep, absolutely. Um, and you have to be tenacious often. <laughs> I <laughs> think tenacious, to tenacious. <laughs> tenacious is a very nice word for desperate. And it is. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, you wouldn't be doing this stuff if you hadn't looked under every rock already, right? Absolutely. I mean, it's really just the next step towards breaking through a brick wall. I mean, that's yeah. really why you do things that are harder. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And for myself, I know the other reason I often turn to this kind of research technique is because I want to answer the why question. So why did they go where they went? Mm -hmm. Right. And why did they do what they did when they got there? Why did they leave where they left? Exactly. So again, if people don't usually drop out of the sky. They're not an island. They go places for reasons. And very often that's because they knew somebody. Right. So right. if you can figure out who they knew or who they were related, it to they can help well also you couldn't you kind of figure out maybe the trail of where people who came to that area yeah. came from i mean you could go back several Absolutely. states really and and look through records in those particular places Absolutely. And I have a good example of that that I can share in just a second. But you bring up a very good point in that you may not only have to kind of branch out sideways, <laughs> so to speak, right. but you also may need to go back. You may need to go back a couple of generations or several states. 
You might also have to come forward. So looking at somebody's children, for example, um, something a little more recent in time and finding out all you can about who they are and who their connections were that might help you. Right. You know, the the tradition might actually extend through to the descendants and they publish it somewhere else far away from where the people were that you're looking for. Absolutely. So what happened? Um, What was your story? I have a great I have a great example of that, actually. Um, So I have an ancestor who was born in Pennsylvania, but in the 1830s, he decided to sort of pull up stakes and go to northwestern Illinois. Initially, I couldn't figure out why on earth you would want to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I mean, the, the Black Hawk War was sort of barely over. It was thinly settled out there. And I can only figure, well, he was probably, I think he was the youngest son of a whole bunch of kids. So maybe he felt like, you know what, I got to go find my fortune somewhere else. So it's going to be on the prairie. So he moves to northwestern Illinois. He does pretty well for himself. By the time I picked him up in the 1860 census, I noticed that his household had two women in it who were also from Pennsylvania, but who I really didn't know anything about. So one of them, her name is Mary Pringle. She's listed as a housekeeper. Okay. And the other woman, whose name is Julia Reynolds, was listed as a servant. I thought, this guy's a farmer in northwestern Illinois. I don't know why he needs a housekeeper and a servant. (laughs) (laughs) Right? There are only about four people in the household altogether. Sure. But I figured, okay, they're born in Pennsylvania. There's probably some relationship there. Well, my ancestor had a son whose name was Champion. He's really easy to track with a name like Champion. Yes, of course. (laughs) Well, and and there is a family name Champion from New England as well. Absolutely right? There's a clue right there. So, you know, you kind of keep that in the back of your mind as you're thinking about that. Well, Champion decided Northwestern Illinois wasn't far enough west for himself. So he (laughs) went to California in the 1860s. How did he head there? I found out it was supposedly by mule train. No, you know, there's no railroad yet. (laughs) So by 1870, he's running a boarding house in Northern California. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah, and I thought, why the heck would you move to Northern California in the 1860s? He's not looking for gold. He's running a boarding house. But curiously enough, in his household were those two women from Illinois, Mary and Julia. And they were they were both continuing to be housekeepers. And you need that with a boarding house. Right. (laughs) Yes, you do. Yes. Well, Julia and Champion got married perhaps unsurprisingly. Um, And they had a son whose middle name was Worthington. And again, much like Champion, you don't usually give your kids names like that unless you're invoking some kind of family connection, right? I thought that was kind of weird. Well, they were still there in 1880, but Champion's father back in Illinois died. They all picked up from California and moved back home to Illinois where they, you know, lived happily ever after. And, and so forth. So I had two big questions. One is why do you go to California for less than 20 years and then come back? <laughs> right. Yeah. Good he inherited point. the farm. I think that was probably part of it. Sure. So why do you do that? And then secondly, who is this Mary Pringle person? She's the the housekeeper who had been initially in Illinois and went out to California and came back. I didn't know who she was, couldn't really figure it out, and I didn't know why they went to California. In order to figure that out, I had to go back to Pennsylvania 
So just like you were, you were saying, and specifically I had to look at champions grandparents back in Pennsylvania and look at all of their children and figure out, well, who are they and what were they doing? Well, it turns out one of his aunts married a man whose last name is Worthington. Aha. Uh-huh. There you go. And so right? then there, yeah, <laughs> that, that's a nice clue right there. There's a nice clue. And that fellow Worthington, one of his brothers moved out to Northwestern Illinois. So my ancestor who moved out to Northwestern Illinois, just the next county over, was following his extended family, his uncle and their family. So that's how they got to Illinois. They followed the uncles. And that's how you learned it. That's great. That's how I learned it. I had to back up a generation, but there's more. Okay. (laughs) Wow. So the Worthington uncle eventually went to Wisconsin, wandered around a little bit, and then ended up in all places Humboldt County, California. So my answer to the question, why on earth would you go to California in the 1860s is, well, your uncle was already living there Ah. and they had an established farm and a business and they could help you out when you got there. It beats farming, doesn't it? Yeah, right. Go west, young man. (laughs) Meet up with your uncle. Start a boarding house. Well, I also started researching these Worthingtons because I wasn't really that familiar with who they were beyond the fact my family had married into them. And it turns out that the, the Worthingtons who moved to California, so my ancestor's uncle, were the parents of his future mother-in-law, Mary Pringle. <laughs> wow. So this all came together, it all just, came together just through the fan club principle. Absolutely. But it, I had to go back two generations into Pennsylvania. Right. And I had to go across three different states. So ultimately, you were looking at three different generations, three or actually more like four states by the time it was all said and done in order to put all the pieces together. How long did it take you? Um... Uh, you know, it's one of the things I worked on off and on <laughs> over a sure. period of time. Because well, it and is a time-consuming process, there's no it doubt. Absolu- it absolutely is. And also having family search digitizing the records so I could, could look at them from home, you know, in, in my mm-hmm. jammies yeah. was, uh, was also very helpful. <laughs> I didn't have to go to the FHL or my family history center to, to take care of that problem. I could do it from home. So well, that certainly sped it up. And this is the up. thing right now. I mean, it's never been easier to use this principle than it is Absolutely. today. And we've got the Absolutely. time these days, you know? Absolutely. Yes, yes, we do. <laughs> Lots of time so we yeah. can fill it up with it. And, that, and that's the whole yeah. point of these conversations are finding ways to help you mm-hmm. break through your brick walls at a time yep. like this. And I'm just maintaining, you know, we could potentially get years of worth of work done in a short period of time because of the opportunity here. That's right. That's right. Yeah, we have a lot of a lot of time to fill. And if we go to the LegacyTree.com website, mm-hmm. we can mm-hmm. also find there's a great article there on the fan club principle. Yes. And I've linked yes. to it on our transcript at ExtremeGenes.com so you can see that as well. Yep. Lots of good tips there. I'll make two points sure. real quickly. Mm-hmm. Beyond branching out sort of sideways, we talked about that to siblings or cousins or neighbors, And beyond backing up in time or coming forward in time, you may have to think beyond who you know to be family. So if you know that your person of interest was a member of a particular church congregation, finding out who else were members of that congregation can be very helpful. Looking at, I think we mentioned other households in the same geographical area 
that don't initially seem to have any surnames that you recognize, but who are just close by can also be helpful. And, you know, speaking of the, the church thing, uh, mm-hmm. Rachel, I, I had that situation come up once where I was trying to connect people and we found a listing of all the people who were part of a regular Sunday school in, mm-hmm. in the 1780s. And it yeah. listed everybody in order. And so while the names were changing a lot, you could go through and go, oh, well, this is how this person's related to this one. And this one's related to that one. And it was as if we had a photograph of the class and you figure, okay, well, obviously the people sitting next to each other are the closest. And you found this one is the one I was thinking would be the sister. And sure enough, she's sitting right next to the person she should be. And then her husband's right on the other side of her. And you put that all together and it's like, ah, now it's beginning to shine a little light on the situation. Now it makes sense. Yeah. And I think that strategy is especially helpful in urban areas where you're looking to find the smaller sort of points of connection, right? People worshiped together. We we use New York City as an example, right? There were Irish Irish Catholic congregations, German Catholic congregations, right? So looking at those and seeing what the connections are there can be really helpful even when you're dealing in a great big urban area like New York. So there are a lot of smaller record groups that you can look for, for um, places like New York. Well, that's true. Church group records are great, but there's really a whole lot more in the cities. Remember that no matter where you are, that you're trying to hit all the bases with the records. So you're not just thinking about census records or vital records, but you're also looking at land records and tax lists and city directories if they exist for the time and the place that you're researching. Uh, Thinking even about court records. Court records can be great at spelling out relationships and all kinds of associations between people, both positive and negative. Sure. And then there's probate, as we talked about earlier, and that's just such an important thing. And and property records, you might not have land records in the bigger cities, but certainly property records. Absolutely. And you often with those have to think pretty broadly in terms of time as well, because some, especially with probate, right? Just yeah. because somebody died <laughs> in one year doesn't mean their their stuff was settled in that year too. You may need to look 10 or 20 years down the line to make sure that you've caught it all. So just being really open-minded about the types of records that might be available and that can be helpful to you. She's Rachel Popma. She is the Quality Assurance Manager for Legacy Tree Genealogists. Thanks so much, Rachel. Great stuff. David Allen Lambert rejoins us from American Ancestors and the New England Historic Genealogical Society. And uh, David, our question for this part is uh, from Kim Hartley, who listens to us in Dallas, Texas. And she says, I have so many DNA matches who don't have trees and don't answer my messages. What's the best way to start figuring out how they match me? That's a great question. Well, you know, one of the things is obviously reverse genealogy, where you're going to essentially have to do a little detective work on who they are related to. Maybe you have some clue geographically or what their name is. And as you're doing the reverse genealogy of all the lines from the different trees that you have, you may bump into, say, their name in an obituary of someone you've just plugged into your tree. So maybe... That's one way of getting them. And, of course, ideally in the uh, days ahead, there are a lot of people at home. So maybe sending another email to them might not be a bad idea, too. Yeah. And reaching out to them saying, you know, 
I'm not sure if you put a tree into your genealogy program, but could you share it with me or if you've written it down on a piece of paper and be willing to open up and send an invitation to your tree always works too because that way they're getting to look at your tree before they have to reveal anything to you and you can say i suspect that we're related to this family from oklahoma or this family from essex england love to hear back from you and besides an email address give a phone number well that's a thought and you know i want to expand on what you were saying about reverse genealogy because that pays Mm -hmm. so many dividends because you don't know where you're going with it right i mean you go back to an ancestor I typically do it from second grades forward, sometimes third, and I even have one fourth grade that I've pulled all the way forward. And when you do that, you stumble upon people, you go, wait a minute, I know that name from among my DNA matches. And uh, when you do that, then you have something, like you say, that you can actually talk to them about and potentially get them to participate in, in helping you figure out some of these lines. Recently, I had a DNA match and uh, it, it showed through through lines that it came through this particular fourth grade grandfather. And I didn't realize that there was a branch through this one son. I had missed a daughter somewhere along the line. And when I checked it out, it all checked out. And suddenly it's like, OK, we got another DNA match going back to this revolutionary ancestor. So through lines helps. The other thing is, let's not ignore shared matches. You know, when you see that you share certain mm-hmm. people from certain branches, at least you're going to get a clue, like you're saying, David, as to where somebody might be coming from, which particular branch, depending on how far back, maybe geographically where they come from or something like that. But there is a lot of benefit to reverse genealogy. In fact, I just did a blog on that on the Weekly Genie newsletter this past week and talking about how I met people I never would have otherwise if I hadn't done it. And they had answers. For instance, where was my second great-grandfather from? Because they had a letter written in the 1930s by a great-grandmother, and that letter was given to this person's mother back during the Depression. And this great-grandmother had known my second great-grandfather who came from England, named the parents, named where they were from. So there are so many things just beyond the DNA matches that can come from reverse genealogy. And I can't recommend it enough. And it's a, it's really kind of an easy thing to do now with so many shaky leaves and, and the hints that you get in different places. So it, it's a great way to spend the time since we're all locked up right now. Exactly. Every time when someone says, oh, I wish I had some rainy day to do genealogy. <laughs> it's raining, folks. every day is a rainy day right now all right thanks so much to kim hartley for that david this question comes from farmington utah from randy townsend and he says guys i sent to the national archives a request for my second great grandfather's pension i'm assuming he had one because he had a really long life and they said they had nothing on file how can that be good question david you are very much into this stuff what do you know well, I'm going to put on my Civil War kepi and thinking cap, and I'll give you a couple <laughs> of the rationales behind this. One possibility, your ancestor did something like go AWOL. He may have lived a long life, but he may have left the service and may have never wanted to be found. Therefore, he didn't ask the federal government for money. Right. That's one possibility. The other one is the National Archives has millions of documents. And there is always a possibility that the file that was transferred from the War Department or the Department of the Interior, depending on when he got a pension, 
when it was sent to the archives in the 1930s, the file may have been mislaid or lost. So that's a possibility. The other one which happened with my own wife's ancestor is her great-great-grandfather got an invalid pension. Then that was filed with his wife's pension that she got after he died in 1870. He was very young. She remarried in 1890 to another man who had his own invalid pension. And when he died, she got his pension until the 1920s. Oh, Guess wow. what? <laughs> All four of the pensions are filed together. Oh, wow. In the same envelope. Yep. So that's a possibility that you may want to look and make sure that your ancestor's widow didn't remarry, or maybe his wife was previously married to somebody else. So would it be filed under her then? Um, it could quite possibly be under her or under the other person's name. Um, there are a lot of possibilities with pensions. They said that the person lived a long time. Well, if your pensioner or their surviving spouse or family member was alive after 1934, there's a very good possibility. If you look for the index card, which I'm not sure if our person did, on Ancestry or on Fold 3, there may be a number, an X, C, or a C number at the bottom of the number. That will indicate that the pension is still held with the Veterans Administration. Now, you can make the request through the VA in Washington, D.C. Wow. It takes a little longer. And, of course, with COVID going on, it's going to take even a little bit longer than that. But that is the way that you can potentially find it. Those are about the likely solutions to this problem. But, again, everyone is a little different. Wow. So the Veterans Administration, I mean, when I think that, I'm thinking of, you know, currently living veterans. I wouldn't think of mm-hmm. Civil War vets. I mean, that's crazy that it's still there and not with NARA. I have always thought that they should be transferred over. I don't know, maybe our friend Brooke Gans from Release the Records can have them <laughs> sent over to the National Archives so we don't have to truck them out around the country. Wow. But um, these are records that still exist. Um, there is a blog on the National Archives um, that says C and XC pension files for the Civil War. If you Google that, you can actually find a nice blog piece that talks about this entire situation of why the numbers are different post-1934 than they are uh, previous to that and where the cases are continuing on. All right. Great stuff, David. As always, thank you so much. Thank you, Randy, for the question. And, of course, if you have a question for Ask Us Anything, you can always email us at askusanything at extremegenes.com. Well, that's our show for this week. Thanks so much, David, for coming on. And thanks also to our guest, Rachel Popma, who was on earlier from Indianapolis with Legacy Tree Genealogist. We'll talk to you again next week. Thanks for joining us. And remember, as far as everyone knows, we're a nice, normal family. This has been Extreme Genes. Share your family story by going to familysearch.org.